Welcome to the Retirement Plan Playbook. I think we have a great topic today. It's a topic that really always gets me fired up, so I'm excited to share it with the listeners. Today we're going to talk about the different types of advisors that are out there. I'm Brent Pasqua, host of the Retirement Plan Playbook, founder of RPA Wealth Management, here with Matthew Thiel, certified financial planner at RPA Wealth Management, Joshua Winterswag, certified financial planner at RPA Wealth Management. How are you doing today, guys? I'm doing great, Brent. Excited for today's show. Me too. Doing well. So as we kind of kick this thing off, seen a lot of news recently about COVID outbreaks in the NFL. I think we're on week four or five coming up in the NFL. How do you think this thing shakes out? Yeah, it's not looking positive, but I mean, the other sports have been able to bounce, bounce back. The MLS, which Josh and I follow very closely, has bounced back. European soccer has bounced back after positive tests. MLB was able to bounce back after what looked like – I mean, there's a weekend in MLB. I think it was like a Saturday where we're like, uh, they're probably not going to play games anymore. But they figured it out. NFL will figure it out. They really messed up their schedule, though. There's no reason to be sending West Coast teams to the East Coast and vice versa. That was a big mistake on their end, but they, they'll get it sorted. Now, are they linking that part to the travel, or has it seemed like a lot of this has happened more in-house and – has been missed protocols by certain teams. I haven't followed it closely enough. No, me either. I'm just happy my favorite team hasn't had a breakout yet. And they're in Florida, so that's kind of surprising. But I'm also kind of surprised that like it took, what is it, week, we're going into week five of the NFL season. And like now they're running into, you know, some bigger issues. I, I would have kind of guessed that because they were traveling back and forth that maybe this would have happened even a little bit sooner. But I have to agree with you, Matt. I think they will figure it out, but it's going to, there's going to be some adjustments definitely to the schedule and to the traditional, you know, records, record keeping of of this league. Yeah. And I I think it's interesting, you know, you knew there was going to be hiccups and I thought, you know, originally the plan was, you know, the person who gets it just kind of gets put off to the side for a few weeks and the team carries on. But it seems like the NFL is being much more sensitive with it and they're being more careful than I thought actually they would be. Yeah, they are. I, absolutely. I kind of thought they'd throw the players off the field and put 10 new ones on. Yeah, that's what I thought. All right, well, let's get into some of the hot take headlines. Tesla is building a gigafactory near Austin, Texas. Did I say that correct, Matt? Yep, sounds good. All right, the area is about 2,000 acres. He's calling it the ecological paradise. They're going to have a bike trail, hiking, a lot of outdoor activities. But the facility will build the Cybertruck Semi, the Model 3, and the Model Y. They're fabricating a lot of the building in other locations and then bringing it over. It's like, I think, on record time of being built. But it's going to help create millions of dollars of tax breaks. Matt, what's your thoughts? Just another company leaving California. Seems to be the trend these days. California is not a business-friendly state, and it's not a tax-friendly state for individuals. And people are leaving. And it's, it's sad to see because it's a beautiful state. But it's a smart move for, for Tesla, Elon Musk, and, and their employees. Good for them. Now, my understanding, Josh, is that he's going to maintain his facility still here in California. But it sounds like this is just one step of his having his foot out the door into another state. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think, it, you know, he had talked about, even when the pandemic first started, about moving out of California because of the lockdowns and not deeming his, you know, manufacturing essential 
And that was like kind of the, the trigger event that probably got his mind going of, you know, all of the other reasons Matt talked about people and businesses moving out of California. So I just think it, it's right in line with, I think, what a lot of people are thinking, what a lot of businesses are debating, because California, again, just isn't, isn't friendly to, you know, business and, and individuals, especially on the tax side. So, you know, he's going to save a lot of money and his new facility sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, it does. I mean, he's just so innovative and he comes up with some such creative ideas. It's not shocking that you would put this building next to Austin. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, having all those employees and, and Texas has a really good workforce. So I'm sure it's not going to be hard, you know, filling that building with workers. Mm-hmm. Another topic and headline for today is talking about SPACs. A SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company, also known as a blank check company. A SPAC has no day-to-day operations, but plans to raise money for an initial public offering so it can start to make acquisitions. It's really a corporate shell usually sponsored by a well-known investor that goes public by issuing shares and raising money from investors with the plan to buy a company. Usually they'll buy either you know, a startup company or a distressed company, but we're seeing this happen a lot more this year. Last year in 2019, SPACs SPACs raised about $13 billion. At this point in the year, they've already raised $12 billion. And they've been in the news of most recent because of Nikola. Nikola became public from a SPAC and probably wouldn't have passed through the IPO process had there been a little bit more due diligence. The due diligence process is different between SPACs and IPOs. And, and so this has really brought that out. But, you know, Nikola probably wouldn't have gone through the IPO process, you know, had they been actually found out that they were just basically drawing trucks and not actually making vehicles. Uh, What's your thought, Josh? Really interesting. I I think that this type of, you know, fund pulling through the stock market volatility, I'm not surprised that it's gaining in in just popularity and it's growing. I think the latest number that I saw is that SPACs actually have grown to 40 billion of what they've earned now through 2020. And it's because, you know, it, it's easier than going through the IPO process. And like you said, Brent, you know, Nicola went through the, the SPAC process and it, it kind of overlooked a lot of things, but just the ease of, of actually going through that process and companies have a little bit more negotiation tactics when they're being purchased by a SPAC, you know, I can see why they're, they're gaining in popularity through this time. Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, and maybe correct me on what the process is, but from my understanding of SPAC, let's say you're an investor and you have $100,000. You can put your $100,000 into this fund. This fund, which let's call it the SPAC, has a purpose of buying another company, but they're, let's say, eyeballing 10 other companies. And once the SPAC raises enough money, they decide on what company that they're going to go after and buy. Is that kind of how the, from the investor standpoint, the process works? Yeah, basically you're buying a, a company called it SPAC A and once SPAC A gets enough money, then they go purchase a real company. And that real company isn't determined when you're investing that money from my understanding. Correct. That's correct. You don't find out till after you've given them your money. But a neat thing is if you don't like the company they, they've chosen or invested in, you could request your money back. Yeah. And I think, I think that's pretty neat. You know, I, and it's been in the news so much more. Is Nikola part of the reason why also your thought is that it's been in the news so much more lately? Potentially, but I, I think it's just been super successful. There's been a lot of companies who have gone 
gone public this way. It's the backdoor way to do it. And they've been big winners on the stock exchange. I'll, I'll name two, Virgin Galactic that makes the spaceships. They were kind of the first prominent company to go public this way. And then another one that I know, I believe all three of us own shares and correct me if I'm wrong, that DraftKings mm -hmm. that we, we participated in that's now public was a SPAC. 47 acquisitions this year. Just seems like, you know, with the M&A market and not as many mergers and acquisitions going on or, you know, IPOs, it seems like a lot to me. I don't know what you guys' thoughts are. Yeah, and it seems like because a SPAC can buy a distressed company, and, you know, with companies that are having challenges under, you know, the pandemic, it seems like an opportune time for SPACs to be able to go in there and buy a distressed company, inject some capital and keep the company afloat during these more difficult times. All right, any more thoughts on SPACs? Just be careful, do your research before you invest in one of these. But I, I do think it's a big one for the individual investor. Great insight. That, that's important for investors to know. All right, let's get into the next topic. Let's get into the retirement planning corner. Today, we're going to talk about the different types of advisors that are out there. There's lots of different types of advisors that will call themselves financial advisors. And they could be either registered investment advisors, broker dealers, just insurance agents, or a hybrid of some of them. Today, let's kind of break down what some of those are, the differences between them, and then why some of them are hidden under that financial advisor kind of title when they're not really a financial advisor. I think this one of the most critical decisions a client can make when hiring an advisor is to actually know what kind of advisor they're hiring. Not all advisors are the same. They're all not designated and structured to do the same things. And so it's important that we know kind of the legal differences between all of them. The first one let's talk about is a registered investment advisor. Matt, tell us what a registered investment advisor is. Yeah, a registered investment advisor or AKA RIA, which is what we are here at RPA Wealth, full disclosure. So RIA firms, they register with either the state they do business in or the SEC. You have to be a certain size to register with the SEC. So if you're going with a small RIA, then they would be state registered. We are SEC registered. And the, the simple legal definition is an RIA has a fiduciary obligation to put you, the client, interest first. Okay. Right? So that, that's what an RIA does. That's what they mean. Typically, a lot of RIAs are going to get paid by charging a management fee. So we call this the AUM fee. They manage your money. They make you know 1%, 2% or less. It just depends on, on their agreements. And, and that's how they get paid. That said, you could kind of be a hybrid and make some commissions. But for the majority, IRAs are what we call fee-based. We're going to touch on fee-only later in the show, so I, I won't really go there yet. One big benefit to RAs is they are usually boutique smaller firms. So they're, they're not going to be under some big corporate structure where, you know, they're trying to make quarterly earnings or the bosses are telling the investment advisors what to do and, and what to sell. Those are all really great and important points. Let's also talk about what a broker-dealer is. Josh, tell us a little about what a broker-dealer is. To me, the easiest way to, to understand broker-dealer is you know, your traditional Wall Street organization and your traditional stockbroker. So these professionals, a lot of them go by financial advisors, and they have looser regulations than RIAs that we just talked about, and they can actually charge you commissions for selling financial products. A lot of times you find these brokers or broker dealers at, again, you know, the big 
Morgan Stanley, the banks is a lot of times, you know, where you get connected with these types of financial advisors. So more of that traditional advisor, you know, kind of platform, you know, what's, what's again, one of the biggest differences is that they can sell you products that are charged a commission um, and they're not giving you necessarily fiduciary advice. Their advice is can be just suitable for you, not necessarily fiduciary. That's something that you really have to keep in mind of not only what type of advice you're paying for and how you're getting paid, but the broker dealers are those traditional, you know, stock brokers that can, you know, sell you something that isn't necessarily fiduciary to your need. And a lot of times, you know, they're connected to a bigger organization, not like the smaller RIAs that Matt just talked about. So a, a broker dealer could have proprietary products that they're selling and they're getting commissions on in multiple ways. Is that correct? 100%. It, it seems like there could be a big conflict of interest in the broker dealer world. Would you assume that that would be true too? Yeah, absolutely. And I actually came, you know, I worked at, at Citigroup for the, the beginning of my career and after college. And, you know, a lot of the same products were, were being sold. A lot of the same advice was being sold. And, you know, it's very high, you know, quantity, not necessarily high on the quality of, you know, the strategies or the investments. So, you know, again, it's just higher transactions. They have so many people coming through the door. Everything's kind of in this, you know, ready to go box for you as soon as you walk in. And, you know, is there grids or higher compensation for these types of advisors to sell more of their products or specific products? Oh, 100%. I mean, it was even to the point where, you know, you get, you can get an email uh, of what products are going to pay you a higher commission or going to get you to your next incentive goal, which could be a vacation or, you know, a higher percentage of payout for the amount of your selling. So it's very, very driven by the compensation of what I'm selling, not necessarily the the right product. And that's just kind of the environment that that I personally saw and that we've, you know, researched with the with the broker dealers. Now considering that that's you know the registered investment advisor side and the broker dealer side, would you ever even consider being a broker dealer considering what you know about that? No. And and the reason why is, you know, we've made that oath, but once I've worked in both industries now, I just don't see how you can give truly fiduciary advice and still be selling products that, you know, have a commission or, or that have a higher, you know, pay scale for them. There's just too much conflict of interest there. So, you know, I, I just would never go back that route because I just didn't see it benefiting the client. I mean, ultimately, you want to work with someone that is fiduciary, that has your best interest at heart, not necessarily the interest of their own pocketbook or the interest of just the broker dealer that they're working for, that big Wall Street organization that they're working for. So no, I would never, never go back to, to that side of the business. Yeah. And I think if people are thinking about it, I mean, if you're, you have a job where your incentive goal and you get paid more money by selling more of something, then generally it would seem that a lot of people would try to hit their goals because people are goal oriented. And by hitting their goals, that means that they're selling more things that they're being told to sell to clients that may not need it uh, in like the broker dealer world, which seems like the outcome for the client wouldn't be as good. Sure. And just to even piggyback on that, like leadership's telling you to sell those certain things too, right? Because probably their compensation's tied to that as well. So, you know, everyone has to benefit. So even if you're not the one that's motivated by, you know, the extra incentive or the extra bonus, 
but your manager, your leaders, or your team leads are all saying, well, you should probably still sell this stuff because then we're all getting paid, even though you might not be the one that's worried about the extra incentive. Just kind of bad culture. Very true. Very true. Great point. The next one that we want to talk about is insurance agents and insurance agents will generally, you know, find themselves considering themselves as financial advisors. Matt, tell us a little bit more about what an insurance agent can do, what they don't do and why they call themselves an advisor. Yeah, kind of similar to broker dealers, right? They call themselves financial advisors where they really aren't. They're really, I guess, insurance advisors. So on the insurance side, they can either be captive where that means they work at one company or you could be independent where you could work with multiple different insurance carriers. But insurance insurance salesmen make money when they sell you a product, they make a commission, they don't get paid any way else. You'll come across an insurance salesman typically at a bank or um, State Farm, I believe, is it Northwestern Mutual is another big one that acts like they have advisors, but it's really just a bunch of people lining up to sell you insurance. I think they say like every financial plan has to have a, like a life insurance at its core. Like they start with the life insurance. Yeah. That, <laughs> that, that's just an insurance agent selling you financial products. So what are the insurance products you're going to run into? You're going to see annuities. You're going to see life insurance, variable universal life insurance is real popular with them. And then variable annuities. All these are high fee, high commission, just like Josh and Brent were talking about. It's about those grids. It's about making more money and hitting your bonuses. You know, it's, I don't want to use the word scummy, but it's, you know, not where I'd go for my financial advice or even for my insurance advice. Right. And it's a conflict of interest because these people are being compensated based on them selling products that pay out a commission and all the different products have different commissions. And so, you know, they're starting to think about their pocket of, hey, if I sell X, Y, Z, then I'm going to make, you know, this amount of money, which can become, I think, very difficult and become a very big conflict of interest. And if you notice, a lot of the commercials that you see on TV aren't about, you know, registered investment advisors and doing the right thing. It's about insurance companies promoting their types of of products. And yes, they have a lot of that, you know, sensitive type commercial marketing, but the reason they're on those big time spots on TV is because they're the ones that make all the money. There is so much compensation surrounded by insurance products. It's just not a little bit. And the more you put into insurance products, the more the compensation is you start dumping a hundred, 200, $500 million in annuity. Guess what? That compensation is life-changing significant. So if people are selling you these products, I think it's something that you need to be aware of and understand exactly how those work and if they're in your best interest. Still to this day, I've been in the business for 16 years, started on the insurance side. I still can't take a life insurance illustration and fully 100% understand what it all means because they are so confusing. Would you agree with that, Josh? Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because like every illustration has some sort of tweak to it. So like they're never uniform. They try to be, but the way they word this type of illustration is different from the next one. I totally agree with you. So hard to understand. So for, you know, a consumer trying to understand it, good luck. Yeah. And you look at an annuity contract, you have a 
60-page book that goes into legal restrictions around the annuity. I mean, to try to think that an, an investor, somebody putting their money into it, is going to trust that the insurance agent really knows what they're doing with the annuity, that's probably more rare. When we talk about designations, we'll talk a little bit more about what you should be looking for. But that's what an insurance agent does. They sell insurance products. Any other thoughts, Matt, as you kind of you know, started a lot of that insurance agents? No, yeah, I mean, I think it'll be fun and it'll give a visual to people who have insurance agents. I mean, on the commission side, Brent, you're, you know, putting some big numbers out there, like, you know, say a million dollars. Someone does a million dollar annuity. I mean, on the commission side, we're probably talking new backyard, new pool money, right? Right. Like that, paid for with cash. Yeah. That's yeah, what you're making on these deals. Yeah, the average commission annuity, I would think, is fair to say somewhere around 6 to 8%. Most ed insurance agents aren't trying to sell a five-year annuity that only pays 2%. They're going up those 10 years with bonuses. That's the ones that pay the bigger commissions. What, 80 grand? Ooh. Yeah. So, and beware. That's what pays for those seminar dinners that, you know, a lot of people get marketing towards. All right. The, the next one is a hybrid advisor. Josh, kind of connect the dots on what a, a hybrid advisor would be. Yeah. So just... Really combining what we just talked about, any of the combination of RIA, broker dealers, and insurance agents. So they could, when an advisor is a hybrid advisor, they could be charging you both fees um, and commissions. So your money management and your investment portfolio could be charged a fee, and that's part of an RIA. And then they could have a separate you know, entity or company or have a broker dealer that they charge commission products as well. And so, you know, one of the things that pops into my mind when I think of hybrid advisors and how to just know if they are or not, just ask them how they get paid be, and be very detailed with, you know, asking what their you know answer is, because that'll kind of lead you to what type of advisor it is. But a hybrid advisor is basically just a combination of, you know, the, the three other advisors that we talked about. And typically, you know, these are the insurance companies. These are the American funds, Edward Jones, the big banks can do this as well. So you walk into, you know, Citibank, Chase, Wells Fargo, they're able to charge, you know, you a commission for an insurance product, but then also charge you a fee for your portfolio management. So these are, um, again, a combination of different types of compensation, which makes, I know, as the consumer, even more confusing. Would a hybrid advisor be considered a fiduciary or would they be held to suitable standards? Just depends on what they're selling. So they could put on the hat and put up, take off the hat as many times as, as they want, unfortunately. So I guess like in more simple terms, so that the listener knows, like you could be having a conversation with your advisor and without him knowing, he's really turn, putting on his suitability hat versus his fiduciary hat. He could be mid-sentence and switching hats the entire time. So you really don't know if you're getting fiduciary advice or suitable advice because he can be using both and having those both those conversations with you without you even knowing. Yep, absolutely. I mean, in this sense of the type of advisors they are, I mean, do you feel that a client should know exactly how much they're paying in fees? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and there shouldn't be any sort of confusion. It should be very easy to understand. So if, as a consumer, if it's not easy to understand what you're paying or you can't get that answer out of your advisor, no matter if it's a hybrid broker dealer, insurance agent, RIA, you know, that's a red flag because again, you should know exactly how much you're paying for everything that you're purchasing. If your advisor says the company pays me, 
I think that's just a red flag to run the other way. Would you agree? Absolutely. So basically, or is it free? I don't really understand it. Elaborate, right? Like if the company's paying me, you don't have to pay me. Then where's my interest as the advisor? Because right. you're not paying, the consumer's not paying me, the company's paying me. So again, big, big red flag, especially when you have those compensation talks. Which I think the compensation talk leads into another thing. And that is something that we are, you know, we decided many years ago that the only way to really be a fiduciary advisor, to really do 100% always and know that the client knows that 100% is in their best interest is to be a fee-only advisor. Matt, tell us a little bit about what a fee-only advisor means. Yeah, so like you said, fee-only is the way to go, we believe. It's truly the only way you can give that 100% fiduciary advice. And what we mean by that and how, how that's possible is you're paid by the clients, right? Our clients pay us and we get paid by nobody else. So if our clients don't wanna pay us, then we don't get paid. And you say, hey, that sounds really simple, but unfortunately that's, the investment industry is far from simple. It's actually very complex on the, on the fee payment side. So fee only is this new movement that really was started in, in the nineties, but has really picked up steam. I'd say in the last five years or so we, we jumped on the train and the way we get paid is we can get paid by managing our clients money in the market. And they pay us for that paid on an hourly basis, kind of like a lawyer would. Or we could do kind of like a project-based work, um, like your CPA with the tax return, right? A little bit more upfront, you know what the cost is, we do the work, and then we go for it. Yeah, I think one thing that's also important is you say, well, how, how do your clients pay? Like if we're managing a client portfolio, and we charge 1% a year, if you have more than a million, it kind of breaks down, and you have some, some tier breaks. But that, that fee comes out every quarter, and then the client gets our performance report every quarter, with specifically exactly what their fee is. So they know exactly what their fee was for the quarter. There's no discrepancy, gray area. There's no conflict of interest. And I think one other thing that's interesting is when we're doing financial planning, whether we're recommending the client go get an umbrella policy or a state plan or a different insurance policy or any recommendation that we give to the client, there's zero compensation coming back from that recommendation ever. We only get paid for the project or managing the portfolio. We're not being compensated in any other capacity. Josh, where do you think, you know, and, and how do you feel about fee-only advisors as you've been one for a long time now and, and kind of where this industry has gone? Uh, I'm just really think that it's the only way to get great financial advice. And really, I truly believe that because when you strip out all of those conflict of interest. And I'm sure there's good advisors out there of all of these different things we talked about, but to truly have conflict free advice given fee only is the way to go. I mean, it's transparent. We just talked about it. We understand, you know, how we're compensated and we work for our client. There is no other conflict. So I just, you know, I'm a firm believer in it. That's why I'm, you know, we're, I'm here talking about it because I think that if you are hiring an advisor, it is truly important to your financial success to have and to hire, uh, you know, a fee-only advisor. And I think I've talked about this in the past, and I haven't really told the whole story about how we became fee-only and, and, and so on. But one day, you know, we'll talk about that. We'll maybe tell the story. But 
the day we figured out really how fee-only advisors work, like we literally changed our mindset that day and never looked back. I mean, being fee-only is 100% about making sure the client is taken care of. And it's so transparent uh, that I really just don't see any other way that a advisor can be truly fiduciary without being fee-only. One of the other aspects that are important as you start to look at who your advisor is currently, or if you're starting to look for another advisor is to consider certifications. It's an important aspect. Everyone wants to know what certifications your advisor have. What are the most important ones, Josh, and, and why are they important? I'll just start with, I'm a little biased because I have my certified financial planner or CFP um, certification, but I do believe, you know, cause this is so specific. If you're hiring a financial planner to have this certification, because the education that goes behind it and the foundation and being fiduciary of taking that up of being a CFP is only going to give you a, an even better outcome when you're, when you're building a financial plan. So I think starting with the CFP accreditation is definitely a, a definitely good start. What are, are there any other certifications that people should be looking for? Matt, you got any other ones? There's a few other ones, but let's, let's just focus on the CFP. I think that's the gold standard in hiring a, a financial planner right now. And, you know, as a client, you've got to ask yourself, would you want to go to a doctor who's not a doctor? You break your leg. Do you want to go to some random guy who's on the corner who maybe read a medical textbook? Or do you want to go to someone who's through med school, they've passed the MCAT, they've passed all their, all their boards, and they're actually trained to help you? Well, that's what a CFP is. They're actually trained to help you in all areas of your financial life. You have to have a college degree, you have to pass a test, you have to go to school on top of college. If you're working with an advisor and they're not a CFP, you should look for a new advisor. Yeah, and, and the other thing is, is it's, it's expensive. It's a commitment towards, towards the career, correct? Absolutely, yeah. It's not something you could, you could do in you know, a weekend. And also, I mean, there's an education requirement to even become a CFP or excuse me, a, a experience requirement. So you can't just become a CFP and just, you know, with no experience, you also have to have experience as a planner to actually use the uh, certification. So I think that's also important. And then it also requires you to continue with continuing education. So making sure your advisor is always on top of his profession um, with that requirement of, of continuing education just makes for again, you know, a better outcome for the consumer. So if you have an advisor right now and you're a little bit questionable whether or not you're getting really good advice or if you're looking for a new advisor to come in prepared, like what would somebody ask to make sure that they're asking some really good questions about if the advisor's good for them or not? Matt, why don't we start with you? Uh, well, first off, if you want to do this, if you go to NAPFA, that's N-A-P-F-A.org, I believe. They actually have a lot of these questions on their website. You could click through and look for like, I'm hiring a advisor. Or you could just hand the sheet to the advisor you're interviewing or your current advisor and have them answer it. I've had a couple of prospective clients do that to me in the past. Um, I actually kind of liked it. Some advisors might not. But, you know, the first question that you should ask is to the advisors, how do you charge for your services? Yeah, I mean, if they can't, if they say that they're getting paid from the company, I mean, to me, red flag, and, and I'm not being biased based because we're fee only. I mean, I just know that the way industry, the industry works, and I know how products work, and so it, it is a big red flag. Josh, what are some other questions? Yeah, um, do they have any potential conflict of interest? You know, and you want that disclosed with you. I think that's very important. And then also asking, you know, how, how they're regulated. Another really, really good question on there. 
that we have for clients. But great tip too um, to go nap the website as well, Matt, for that questionnaire. I think that was a really good tip. Yeah, and I think also asking about the services that the that the advisor offers. You know, if a client wants more planning based or if they want more portfolio management, how often you're going to meet? What the kind of the reviews? Like, what? How many often are you going to do those reviews? And what you're going to be expecting once you do those reviews? And you know, you want to know what you're going to get by working with those advisors. We have very specific systems that we go through. We're meeting with our clients. We have a meeting agenda. We have a lot that we we're talking about with the client around their goals and their plan and their taxes and their investments and so forth. So making sure that you're getting actually what you're paying for, because it seems like there's a lot of different service types out there and not everybody's getting the type of service that they would really typically need or want or should they should be getting. Uh, any other questions that you guys can think of? Do we cover certifications? Asking what your certification is? I don't think we did. So always ask, you know, what, what their certifications are. There's a lot of them. CFP is the gold standard. Make sure they have at least that. There are add-ons you could do the CFP once you become one. For instance, we, we've been doing the exit planning for business owners. There's one for private wealth for clients who have, you know, 15, 20, 30, 30 million or more. You could go that route, go the tax route, but there's lots of different add-ons you could do to a CFP. Great, great point. All right, let's segment into the... Last part of the show, always my favorite, RPA recommends. Uh, Matthew, I'll start with you. You look like you're ready to go on this recommend. Tell us what you have. I have I have nothing. I have absolutely nothing today. You know, last time on the show, I hinted that I bought a Peloton, so all my money went towards the Peloton bucket for a while. I'm still waiting for delivery of my bike. But, you know, I'm a new dad, so I'm going to say to those people who are on the fence about having kids, definitely go for it. It's awesome. That's my recommends. If you have kids yourself and, you know, they're newlyweds and you want to be a grandparent, push your kids to have kids. It's truly awesome and my recommends for, for today. And I probably a, have no good recommends because all we do now is, you know, take care of the baby and watch football. So That's a, that's a big recommends. Have a baby. <laughs> There's so much I could say about that. I mean, if you didn't have a recommend, I was going to say that probably needed to be your recommend because I hear you saying that to all your friends who don't have kids, that they should have a kid. So uh, I feel like I, it's kind of pointed at me, right? Like he's kind of saying it like, hey, Josh, I'm recommending this too, to you too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have a, there's a few of my, our buddies that are still kind of on the fence and, you know, they're you know, still waiting for the marriage step too. So, yeah, they got to do the kids and the marriage as well. Josh, what do you have for us on the recommend? My recommends, oh, I know what mine is. Uh, this last Saturday, uh, my wife had purchased, it was pretty cool, one of her favorite singers had a virtual concert. I think it was only like 12 bucks, and so you got like an access code to it. And so our Saturday night was filled around watching this, you know, private concert that was put on, you know, with you purchasing it. So really cool. Just kind of recommend if uh, you have a favorite artist or you know, you're following them or looking at that up. I know a lot of these artists are doing that. I thought it was a pretty cool experience through this time to, to sit down and, and listen to some live music of your favorite artists at a, a pretty reasonable you know, cost. So I think it was only like 12 bucks. So uh, that was a, a, a pretty cool experience on Saturday night. That's pretty neat. I like, I'll probably have to check that out. My recommend is the FitTrack. It's actually a scale. It's a pretty high-tech scale. You can download the app to go with the scale. And the scale will tell you a lot of body metrics about your body. Um, 
my wife had been pushing to get one. She finally got one. You know, we work out. We've been obviously eating very different um, over the last couple of years and even more so in quarantine. So it's pretty interesting to watch your weight and just some of the metrics every day. You know, if you're putting yourself on a scale every day, it's pretty interesting to see. So I've been utilizing that. I found it pretty helpful. When I think the most interesting thing to me is, you know, like on the weekend, I'll have one cheat meal. But that cheat meal will take me like three or four days to really lose the extra pounds in my average weight from that one cheat meal. So it's pretty interesting. Like you can start to really track how your body responds to certain foods and metrics around your body. Yeah, I should get one of these to go with my Peloton so I could track my progress because I got dad bod right now. <laughs> and it'll definitely be helpful and teach you something. So that's my recommend a fit track. Check it out. They're not that expensive and uh, they're pretty useful. So as we kind of end this thing, uh, any parting thoughts that you have, either of you? No, I think it was good info. Ask your advisor questions before you hire. Yeah, we're advisors. We love helping people, and that's why we do it. You know, if you would like to schedule an appointment with any of us, just go to our website at rpawealth.com. You can schedule a complimentary consultation. We'll know who's the favorite on the show as, you know, we continue to get more appointments from the show, but... You know, we have a little competition on who gets more appointments from the podcast. But you can also download our ebook on our website. If you'd like the show notes, go to Retirement Plan Playbook. But thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to Retirement Plan Playbook. We'll see you next time. RPA Wealth Management is a state-registered investment advisor located in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. RPA Wealth Management may only transact business in those states and jurisdictions in which it is registered or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from registration requirements. A copy of RPA Wealth Management's current disclosure statement, Form ADV Part 1, containing RPA Wealth Management's business operations, services, and fees is available by accessing the SEC's Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website. RPA Wealth Management will provide Form ADV Part 2A from Brochure and 2B Brochure Supplement to interested parties upon request. Information provided on this podcast should not be construed as a solicitation or offer or recommendation to acquire or dispose of any investment or engage in any other transaction. RPA Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personal investment advice or financial planning advice through its podcasts. RPA Wealth Management podcasts are intended for information and educational purposes only.